verses 1 through 7. Thankfully, this is one of those paragraphs where you don't have to work hard to figure out the main point. Because the main point is the very first verse. It's the very first thing that Paul says. And then everything underneath that is supporting that main point. So the main point of Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, is that every person ought to be subject to the governing authorities. And so all we did then is we followed uh, Paul's line of thinking in the next seven verses as he supports that command. And we did so using several questions. Who should be subject to the governing authorities? Answer, every person. What does it mean to be subject to the governing authorities? And we saw that it begins with an inner attitude of respect and honor and deference towards those in authority over us. And then it shows itself in the way we speak and in the way we act. Uh, we asked, when are we to submit to governing authorities? Because we know there has to be some exceptions. And what we established this morning is that always our base default position should be one of submission. But when we're asked to break a law of God, when we're asked to violate our own conscience as informed by the word of God, then and only then are we to act in disobedience to civil authorities. And we asked how. How do we submit to governing authorities? And the answer was by recognizing that, that God gives us so much through these people uh, and therefore giving to them what we owe them. Giving to them the gratitude, the respect, the honor uh, that they are worthy of because of the ways that they serve our lives and that they act as God's agents in our lives. But most of the paragraph is Paul answering the why question. Why submit to governing authorities? And he spends a lot of time on his first answer, namely to avoid the wrath of God. He doesn't treat this as something small. He doesn't treat uh, being unsubmissive to civil authorities as a minor sin, a respectable sin, a, a sweep it under the carpet sin. He says to avoid the wrath of God, you should submit to governing authorities because every authority that exists exists because of him. Every one of them have been instituted by him and they are God's agents for your good. To sin against governing authorities is to sin against God. But there is that other reason he gives in verse 5 for why we are to subject ourselves to governing authorities. Verse 5, therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the sake of conscience. And so that's what we're going to be looking at over the next three messages, is what is conscience and what is its role in the Christian life. Now, I created a little booklet that hopefully you picked up out there to help you. And you may be wondering why the I stands out in the title. There is no I in team, but there's an I in conscience. And there's no excuse for it. This does not look like this on my computer. It's just how it came out when it printed. So there is no rhyme or reason behind why the eye is just standing out. So uh, it really kind of drives me crazy. I'm a little, uh, but anyway, I'll get over it. Uh, that's how it came out. So we'll be using this uh, tonight. And then remember, next Sunday is going to be different. We have Lord's Supper in the Sunday morning. We have Christy Shivu coming Sunday night. Uh, very excited about that. So you're going to want to hold on to this because then two Sundays from now, we'll come back to it and continue in our study. So hold on to your booklet. Don't, don't lose it. Let's talk about Martin Luther. Uh, Martin Luther stood before his judge 
before his examiners at the Diet of Worms. He was on trial because of the message that he preached, because of the books that he had written, because of the gospel that he was proclaiming. And when asked to recant, Martin Luther famously said, My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. So you hear Luther's statement there. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. To go against conscience is a sin. It isn't right. To go against conscience is to invoke the wrath of God. It isn't safe. For the reformers like Martin Luther, for the Puritans that came after them, for Christians of old, the conscience was of vital importance. They were concerned with their consciences. And they were concerned with not violating their consciences. Uh, Here in our passage we've been studying, we see Paul gives these two reasons to submit to governing authorities. And this second reason is for the sake of conscience. So there is something in Paul's mind so important about your conscience that he believes this argument will compel you to obey. He believes that you care enough about your conscience that this argument is going to motivate you to be submissive to governing authorities. Submit to civil authorities for the sake of your conscience. Of course, we live in a secularizing culture. And one effect of secularism is that it diminishes the conscience. The the prophets of secularism, folks like Richard Dawkins and the late Christopher Hitchens and others, they teach that your conscience is simply a product of evolution. In a godless world, there is no right or wrong. But evolution has created in you a conscience as a survival mechanism to help you integrate with the society around you. In other words, evolution has placed a Jiminy Cricket inside of you that reminds you of the morals and the values of your tribe, your people, so that you don't act in a way that might put you outside of your tribe and therefore keep you from continuing to propagate the species. That's the evolutionary view. Now, you, you, you remember the story of Pinocchio? All right, in that story, you have the character Jiminy Cricket acting as Pinocchio's conscience, reminding him of what is right and what is wrong. But according to the secular worldview, there is no ultimate right or wrong. There are only the moral attitudes that were taught by the folks around you growing up. Therefore, increasingly, conscience is taken less seriously. To say that something is a matter of conscience doesn't mean much to the secular person. And this was put on full display just some weeks ago. Um, The Department of Health and Human Services announced that it was creating 
a new conscience and religious freedom division. This was something that President Trump and his administration had been promising. This is something that uh, our former Attorney General, uh, Jeff Sessions, no, who was our former Attorney General? Was it Jeff Sessions? For some reason it didn't sound right when I said it. Uh, this is what Jeff Sessions, is something that he had been passionate about, creating a division of our government that would help protect religious liberty. And so he was instrumental in creating this conscience and religious freedom division. And the purpose of this division is to protect doctors and other medical workers from being forced to participate in prescriptions or procedures that would violate their consciences. In particular, this division was created to defend medical workers who were being turned down from jobs or refused accreditations or threatened with penalties because they will not conscientiously participate in an abortion or in an assisted suicide or in the promotion of transgenderism and transgender surgeries and other types of confusion and medical counseling. Um, when Jeff Sessions announced this, the reaction was very quick. The, the reaction was very loud in article after article and editorial after editorial. The decision to create this division was lambasted. It was even ridiculed. And what was particularly surprising to me was how many of the articles put the word conscience in quotation marks. There were headlines like protesters rally against HHS proposal on conscience rules. Conscience. Conscience put in quotation marks as if it isn't real. Headline after headline followed that same pattern, treating conscience as something laughable, treating conscience as an excuse, as if people following their consciences is an old-fashioned, outmoded idea. Because if there is no God and there is no true standard of morality, who cares about conscience anymore? Follow your conscience, what I ought to do, has been replaced with follow your heart, what I want to do. Following your conscience means doing what you believe is right or doing what you believe is right. Following your heart means doing what you think will make you happy. Our culture no longer believes so strongly in doing what is right because it no longer believes there is a right. It believes only in doing what makes you happy. We are called to be different. Christians care about the conscience. We are to be a conscientious people. Romans 13 demands it. So do so many other passages in the New Testament that speak to us about this subject. Paul told Timothy that many had made shipwreck of their faith because they had not held on to a good conscience. And I hope there's no shipwrecks in the making in this room. We want to know what it is to hold on to a good conscience. A pastor's job is to instruct the people of God with the word of God. And particularly to help them apply God's word to their lives and to their situations. And so in our lives, in our situation, there is a lot of confusion about this subject. And a lot of need for some biblical light. 
Moreover, I think it's fair to assume that we in this room, the number of people in this room, have folks in all kinds of various states of conscience. That is, some of you may have tender consciences, and some of you may have sleepy consciences, and God forbid there may be some seared consciences in this room. So the question we're going to come back to again and again is, how goes it with your conscience? What is the state of your conscience this evening? So let's look at what the Bible says about our consciences. First, conscience defined. Okay, what, what is it? What are we talking about? What is your conscience? I'll give you a simple definition, and then we'll see it scripturally throughout our study. Put simply, conscience is the inner courtroom of the soul established by God in which a person judges himself. Conscience is the inner courtroom of the soul established by God in which a person judges himself. When your conscience is functioning rightly, you are judging yourself in the light of God's holiness. J.I. Packer says, Conscience is man's knowledge of himself as standing in God's presence. Thomas Aquinas defined conscience as man's judgment of himself according to the judgment of God of him. And the Puritan William Ames gave a more thorough definition. Conscience is the understanding power of our souls, examining how matters do stand between God and us, comparing His revealed will with our state, condition, and behavior in thoughts, words, or deeds, done or omitted, and passing judgment on these as the case requires. So throughout the Bible, we see that God has given all human beings the capacity to judge ourselves. Uh, Isaiah 5 verse 3, Isaiah is preaching judgment to the people of Jerusalem. He's preaching judgment to the people of Judah. And God called the people to consult their own consciences. God said, and now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. Isaiah had established that they were the vineyard that God had planted. God's people were the vineyard. And God is calling on his people not just to hear his judgment, but to consult their own judgment. God is saying, does not your own conscience show that you are condemned? Does not your own judgment show that you have violated my law, that you have broken my covenant? Is there not a self-judgment? Is there not something in your own conscience that bear witness to you of your guilt before me? That's what God is saying there. Judge for yourself how things stand. In 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul has been teaching on the Lord's Supper... He talks about the importance of self-examination. He says, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. 
That is why many of you are weak and ill if some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Hear that last part. God has given us this inner courtroom called the conscience so that through self-judgment, we can escape his judgment. Through self-judgment, we can repent and turn to Christ. Through the conviction of your conscience, you can be led to do right when you are being tempted to do evil. Or when you've done evil, your conscience can bring conviction and help you see and feel the evil that you've done and push you to embrace forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ and find salvation. Our consciences are a gift to us. Our consciences are a gift of self-judgment so that we will not be condemned by God's judgment on the last day. The conscience has been described as God's deputy in your soul. God's deputy in your soul. When functioning rightly, the conscience tells you inwardly about how things stand between you and God. When functioning rightly, your conscience tells you what is already true in the courts of heaven above. And we have the opportunity to respond to God's deputy and the message our conscience brings before the day that we have to stand before God himself. So that's definition. Let's look at the functions. The functions of conscience. What does a conscience actually do? What is its role in your life? First... Conscience is a law preacher. Conscience is a law preacher. Okay? A law preacher. Back in Romans 2, verse 15, Paul taught us that the work of the law is written on the hearts of all people. And it's not work as a verb, it's work as a noun, right? When you work as a verb, the result of your work is your work. Your work is a noun. Um, if I say to Jonathan, Jonathan, show me your work, I'm asking him to show me the product of his work. I'm asking him to show me what his work has accomplished. When Paul says the work of the law is written on people's hearts, he is referring to the knowledge of right and wrong. The result of the law's work is its work, and its work in you is your inward understanding. Your instinctual, God-given, conscious understanding that there is a right and that there is a wrong and that you know that if you cheated on that test, you did wrong and nobody had to tell you that. You just know it. You stole from that person, you just know in your conscience because of the work of the law, you did something wrong. Paul says our consciences bear witness to the work of the law. One great function of the conscience is to bear witness to the knowledge of right and wrong that we all have by nature. God has bound up his most basic moral principles into the heart of men. Our conscience speaks to us of that law. Now, sometimes your conscience may remain relatively quiet. You don't really think about your conscience much. You're not really feeling anything as far as guilt or anything like that. And then suddenly you find yourself in that sticky situation. 
And suddenly your conscience awakens. And, and what does it do? It preaches to you. It counsels to you. Uh, we used the illustration this morning. You're hanging out with a group of people and suddenly they all want to go together to see that movie. And your conscience wasn't doing anything. Your conscience was moving along. And suddenly you're like, yeah, we're going to go to a movie. And they say, we're going to go to that movie. And suddenly your conscience wakes up. What, what, what movie? Right? And your conscience begins to preach to you. You, you ought not to go to that movie. You, you know what's included in that movie. You know what your eyes will see. You know what your ears will hear. You, you don't need to go to that movie. Your conscience talks to you about what you ought to do and ought not to do. Your conscience is not a counselor that makes suggestions. Your conscience doesn't come along and give advice. Your conscience comes along and it preaches to you concerning moral principles. It instructs you. It says you ought to or you ought not. It's a law preacher. Second, conscience is a recorder or a register. You can choose which one you want to use. A recorder or a register of thoughts, words, and deeds. Is a recorder or register of your thoughts thought, your words spoken, and your deeds done? Your thoughts thought, or maybe that should be your thoughts thunk, I'm not sure. <laughs> or your words spoken, or your deeds done. You see, conscience isn't just a witness to you of what is right and wrong. Conscience is also a witness to you of what you've done in the past. Conscience remembers what you've done and holds it up to God's law and helps you sense and feel when you've broken God's law. Your conscience has a good memory, by the way. Uh, your conscience records those times when you've chosen to do wrong. Your conscience keeps a file of the worst sins in your life. Those sins when you hurt other people, those sins when you did things that you thought you could never do. You may have spoken some words that other people who heard them, they've long forgotten them, but your conscience remembers. You know the thoughts that you've had that nobody else would ever imagine. And you know the secrets of your own life. Your conscience knows, your conscience keeps a record. And that leads us to the third function of conscience. It is a prosecuting attorney. It is a prosecuting attorney, kind of like Emily Baker. Isn't that your role in mock trial? Prosecuting attorney? Conscience is a prosecuting attorney. Maybe it was something you did that you thought was right at the time, but now God's holiness is exposing the truth of what you've done, and you realize what you did was actually quite wrong. Or maybe it was something you thought or said or did in a thoughtless moment. Maybe it was a sudden, unplanned moment of anger, an urging of lust, a flash of envy as you saw that Facebook post and suddenly, oh, I wish. Oh. And now your conscience shows you the truth of what you've done. But worst of all, maybe it was a sin against conscience. That is, maybe you committed a premeditated sin, something that your conscience told you was wrong before you even did it, and you chose to do it anyway. In all of those cases, conscience becomes your accuser. 
Conscience becomes your inner prosecuting attorney calling you out. Declaring to your own soul you have done evil. 1 Samuel 25, 31 speaks of the pangs of conscience. Have you ever known the pangs of conscience? Have you ever known what it is to be accused in your own soul? To feel the dirtiness of what you've done. The vileness of what you thought. The evil of what you said. That's what Paul has in mind in Romans 13. He says, be subject to the governing authorities for the sake of conscience. He's trying to spare you the pangs of conscience. He's trying to spare you the the feelings of guilt and the words of accusation that ring in your ears when your conscience stands against you because you've broken the law of God. Fourth, at times, conscience is a defense attorney. At times, conscience is a defense attorney. This is true when others accuse you of doing wrong, and yet your conscience really is clear in the matter. Your conscience hears what others are saying, but puts your actions up against your understanding of right and wrong, and argues that you actually have not done evil in that matter. Have you ever been able to say to somebody, oh, my my conscience is clean about that? Well, people are saying that you did this in that situation. Or people are saying that you said, no, actually, I, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've done things wrong. But when I think about that situation and how I responded, my conscience is clean. I honored God in that situation. Job. His friends were arguing that he had done some, some sin against God, some particular wicked thing that caused God to kill his children, to, to put boils on his skin, to kill his servants and his livestock. And, and Job knows he's not perfect. Job knows he's a sinner. But he also knows that he did not commit some grave sin like they're suggesting that is the cause of all this. His conscience defends him. We see this with Paul. Some in the church in Corinth were making some pretty bad accusations about Paul. Uh, He writes in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 12, Our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so towards you. In other words, rather than ignoring the accusations that were being made against him by some people in that church, Paul consulted his conscience. He consulted his conscience and he said, did I, when I was in Corinth, did I act in a way that wasn't right? Did I, did I behave in a such a way that I set an, an ungodly example? He consulted his conscience and his conscience, informed by the word of God, vindicated him. His conscience defended him. He was able to say the testimony of my conscience is that we behave with simplicity, godly sincerity, and supremely so towards you. So yes, conscience can be a prosecuting attorney, but it can also be a defense attorney. Number five. Conscience is a judge. 
Conscience is a judge. When it's functioning rightly, it declares God's judgments against the soul. Conscience speaks to you, declaring with a sense of finality, guilty, guilty, guilty. Conscience holds your thoughts, your words, your actions up against what you know to be right and what you know to be wrong and declares the inescapable conclusion that you are deserving of the wrath of God. That you have done evil and that there is evil within you. It declares the verdict. Now before we move on. Note how each of these functions of conscience. Mirrors God himself. Because it is God who is the ultimate law preacher. Putting his law into the heart of every person. All people everywhere have the law of God within them, and it's God who designed them this way. Second, it's God who is the ultimate recorder and register of your every thought, word, and deed. On the last day, God's books will be opened, these books that have recorded every day of your life. And in those books will be found the record of every transgression of God's law you've ever committed. Your most vile sins, your most secret sins will all be revealed and exposed, brought into daylight on that last day. You can escape the eyes of men, but you can never escape the eyes of God. He sees all. He records all. You will be judged on the last day on the fairest measure of all. What you yourself actually thought, said, and did. And all of us will be found to be tragically unrighteous. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Eternal death in hell. And on that day, God will be a prosecuting attorney. It's God who will bring the charges against us. It's his books that our lives are written in. It will be God who declares us guilty. It will be God who issues the judgment. It will be God who carries out the condemnation. Or, if we are in Christ, it will be God who is our defense attorney, who declares us righteous in Him because of Christ. It will be God who declares that all the punishment our sins deserve have been endured by Christ on the cross. It will be God who ushers us into a heaven we don't deserve but have yet been graciously given. So every function of your conscience is a mirror of God himself. It really is a deputy of God. It really is an agent of God in your soul to prepare you for the last day. What is happening with your conscience is a mirror of what will happen when you stand before the one who made you. So maybe this is another time to stop and just ask, how goes it with your conscience? What is happening in the inner courtroom of your soul? Do you have a clean conscience this evening? Can you say with Paul in 2 Timothy 1, I thank God whom I serve with a clean conscience. Can you say that? It's a great thing to be able to say. I thank God whom I serve with a clean conscience. 
First Timothy 1.5, Paul said, The aim of our charge, that is the aim of, of what we're calling you to do, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The Bible makes clear that you can have a clean conscience. The Bible makes clear that you can have a good conscience. You have one. Look at the purposes of conscience. The purposes of conscience. Why did God create us with this inner courtroom inside of us? Why did God give us this faculty called the conscience? First, as we've seen, your conscience was created to inform you of how you stand before God was created to inform you of how you stand before God. We quoted 1 Corinthians 11 earlier on this. And all the joys of a clean conscience, the joy of knowing that your sins are forgiven and that you are counted blameless in God's sight. And then even as a child of God, there is the joy of a conscience that testifies to you that you really are walking in faith and obedience, that you're not being dishonorable to the one who saved you. You know, make sure you, you get this. It is better to be the poorest person on earth with a clean conscience than to be the wealthiest person on earth with a disturbed conscience. There are many powerful, wealthy, famous people in this world who are miserable because of their conscience. We ought to pursue a clean conscience. In there, we can find peace and joy Second, your conscience was created to bring you to Christ. Your conscience was created to bring you to Christ. This is the Holy Spirit's way, is it not? If you're here this evening and you claim to be a Christian, but you've never had your conscience awakened and alarmed by the Spirit of God, I doubt you've ever known anything of true faith. This is the way it starts. This is how you get to salvation. The way of salvation is repentance and faith. And you cannot repent without first having your conscience alarmed. Whether it happened in a single hour for you. And in that hour, you you suddenly saw for the first time and you felt for the first time the judgment of God in your soul. Guilty, guilty. And you ran to Christ and found forgiveness. Whether you were like Bunyan that we talked about this morning. For him, it took months. He lived with with a conscience bearing down on him, utterly miserable for months. Before finally God gave him peace as he rested in the Lord Jesus Christ as his only righteousness before God. However it happened, God's way is to bring his law to bear on you in such a way that your own conscience declares you to be lost. Your own conscience declares you to be deserving of hell. And only when the inner courtroom of your soul has declared you guilty will you truly run to the Lord Jesus Christ and find salvation. Third... Your conscience was created to bear witness before God and yourself on the last day. Your conscience was created to bear witness before God and yourself on the last day. Uh, Back in Romans 2, verse 15, this is the main point Paul is making. 
Basically, nobody will stand before God on the last day and say, you can't condemn me, God. Because I didn't have your law. And I didn't know your principles. If I had known, if I had known that stealing was wrong, I'd have never stolen. If I had known that hating that person was wrong, I'd have never hated. But God, I plead ignorance. I did not know. And Paul says not even, well, nobody, not not even a person from the most remote tribe of the Amazon rainforest who's never heard a word about Christianity, who's never heard about the Ten Commandments, they will not be able to raise that defense before God. Why? Because their own consciences will testify against them. Their own consciences will bear witness and say, there was a time when you felt your guilt because you knew what you were doing was wrong and you did it anyway. God will say, you remember that time when your conscience told you, don't do that, and you did it? Even our own consciences will reveal us to be a people who have chosen evil, a people who have knowingly and willingly and presumptuously transgressed the law of God. Look, conscience is a dear friend who comes to you in your danger and wakes you up. And and Imagine a sleeping person in in a house on fire. It is not loving to leave that person asleep. Your conscience, when it comes to you, when you, you're walking in a, in a way of fire, you're headed towards hell, and your conscience wakes you up and says, you're, you're guilty, you need to run to Jesus. That is conscience being your friend. But if you never run to Jesus, on the last day, conscience will prove to be a bitter enemy to you because it will take away your every excuse before God. It will undermine your every argument to protest against God's judgment. For all eternity, unbelievers in hell will not only have to endure the pangs of outward torment, but unbelievers in hell have to bear the pain of inward conscience screaming at them, you knew what you were doing and you did it anyway. You knew it was wrong and you violated the law of God thousand times in a thousand different ways you are a sinner you are evil you are wicked and that person lives with that for all eternity with no defense because conscience is just telling the truth so maybe we should stop here and just ask the all-important question how can we obtain a good conscience How can we come to the point where we can say with Paul that our conscience is clean before God? There is one passage in the New Testament that addresses this directly. So turn to 1 Peter 3. Look over at 1 Peter 3. First Peter 3, beginning in verse 18, here is your answer to obtaining a good conscience. 1 Peter 3, beginning in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared. 
in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. You see that at the heart of this passage is the gospel. It's the good news of what Jesus has done. Verse 18, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Your guilty conscience screams at you. You are unrighteous. Good news. Jesus died for the unrighteous. Peter says that Christ suffered that he might bring us to God. What does your guilty conscience tell you? It tells you your sins have separated you from God. Peter says Jesus came to bring you to God. Peter then speaks of the days of Noah. Uh, The spirit of Christ was in Noah, through Noah. Christ called to that wicked generation, called them to repent. Christ, through Noah, called out to those sinners. God patiently waited, providing time for any who would be saved to believe and to get on the ark before it was too late. And in the end, only eight persons believed and only eight persons got on the ark and were brought safely through the water. They were the only ones. And then Peter makes the connection to baptism. He says, just as the faith of those eight persons was shown by them getting on the boat and coming through the water, so our faith in the message of the gospel is shown when we take the step of baptism, going through the water in obedience to Christ. He says that when you're baptized, it is not mainly about getting outwardly clean. Baptism is not about the removal of dirt from the body. If you want a bath, take it at home. He says that's not what baptism is about. Here's what it's about. An appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is not about getting outwardly clean. It's about appealing to God for a conscience that is clean. So let me try and bring this home for us. Here is how you can obtain a good conscience. And here is how you can find freedom from inward guilt and from the true guilt that you have before God. 2,000 years ago, a carpenter from Nazareth crucified on a tree in Jerusalem. Three days later, he rose again. When he rose again, it was God declaring that all of Christ's work was sufficient and accepted so that whoever believes on Jesus has their sins forgiven, they are given peace with God, they are given the promises of heaven. In the courts of God, a person who believes on Jesus is declared righteous, blameless, holy, and pure. And when a person is baptized in the name of Jesus... It is an outward act of faith, calling on God through the work of Jesus to save. Baptism is like getting in Noah's ark. Baptism is saying, God, I believe this message I've heard. I'm entrusting myself to Christ and Christ alone and his finished work. And Peter's saying, whoever does that, Whoever steps out in faith and appeals to God for that clean conscience, that good conscience that's available through Jesus Christ, that person is truly and wonderfully saved. This is what faith does. 
Once you've come to understand and believe my sins are forgiven in the courts of heaven, it becomes a soothing balm to your conscience. The courtroom of your soul begins to mirror the courtroom of heaven. And in the courtroom of heaven, through Jesus Christ, you are innocent. In the courtroom of heaven, through Jesus Christ, you are blameless. You are forgiven. As you believe on Christ and believe that he has truly saved you, your conscience will still, throughout the Christian life, wake you up to moments when there is sin. It will wake you up to moments when you are dishonoring the Father who saved you. But the blood of Jesus applied to your conscience brings you peace. The blood of Jesus applied to your conscience brings you security and strength to walk through this life, not with a seared conscience, not with a sleepy conscience, not with a conscience that you're constantly having to push back, push back. I don't want to remember that. I don't want to think about that. I don't, I don't want to remember that anymore. You don't have to live that way. Because you can apply the blood of Jesus to it and say, yes, conscience, I know I did that, and I know what Jesus has done for me. And therefore, conscience, now serve me in this way. When I begin to dishonor the Father who saved me, Help me know it, that I can repent and do right. So have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you shown your faith by being baptized in his name, calling on God through that outward act to save you and make you his own? Through Jesus, anybody can have a clean conscience. Poor person, rich person, a weak person, a strong person. It was in our confession this morning. The most wicked person on earth can be given true salvation and a clean conscience if they will only believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll stop there. So, we talked about government this morning. talked about conscience this evening. Any questions from what we've talked about today?